It's time now for super psychologist, Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years. Good evening and welcome to Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years this evening and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. Central Time and at 6 p.m. Eastern Time right here on blogtalkradio.com, on drmaracarpell.com and on Apple Podcasts. And today is Sunday, August the 22nd, 2021, and I'm psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell, and we are back live from beautiful, hot Austin, Texas. And I hope that wherever you are, you're staying safe and cool, and especially staying safe if you're in the Northeast as Hurricane Henri bears down on the coast. Um, Art Mendoza of Accomplice Entertainment is here with us to make the show run smoothly as usual, and we have another great program in store for you. In a little while after the break, we'll be joined from Houston, Texas, once again by therapist, Asperger's, and internet addiction specialist and author Nathan Driscoll. And this time, Nathan joins us to talk about autism and his book, So You Have Autism, Now What?, And then later in the show, we'll hear from the twins, Minerva and Ruben, in Bay of Banderas, Mexico, to take us on another trip to a Mexico destination. And along the way, I'll talk a little bit more about reconnecting to your passion through these difficult times. And this time, I'll talk about doing that through compassion. And throughout this evening's program, we will have time to take your questions. So if you have any questions or comments for me or for my guests, please feel free to give a call. The toll-free number is 855-345-4720. That's 855-345-4720. Or you can email your questions to me, and I will read them on the air to my guests. My email address is drmara, D-R-M-A-R-A, at drmaracarpel.com, D-R-M-A-R-A-K-A-R-P-E-L.com. And you can hear this evening's program again after the program by going to my website later tonight and the podcast along with any website links that we discuss on the show will be posted later this evening at my website, dramaracarpel.com. But you can also hear the podcast immediately following the program. It's about five minutes after the show ends, by going directly to Blog Talk Radio, B-L-O-G, talkradio.com slash your golden years. And you can also find it on Apple Podcasts, and it'll be there five minutes after the show ends. Be sure to follow me on Facebook for upcoming events and shows, Dr. Mara Carpell, Your Golden Years. This evening's program is sponsored by Accomplice Entertainment, Postal Productions, and Psyched Up Productions. And, I mean, produced, produced by those production companies and sponsored by AMightyGoodTime.com. So are you wondering what to do after 50? How about having a mighty good time? It's free to search, free to post, and much more, whether it's in person or virtually. Anything can be found to fill your day 
with others in your own age group and interest group. So be more active and start filling your days. Go to amightygoodtime.com. That's amightygoodtime.com. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. It's going to be very quick, so we can play a couple of our other sponsors' commercials. Uh, When we come back, we're going to be joined right here by Nathan Driscoll to talk about his book, So You Have Autism, Now What? So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Super psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell will be back after words from our sponsors. Are you or a loved one a Medicare beneficiary? Help save you and Medicare money by stopping Medicare fraud. Fraud happens when Medicare is billed for services or supplies you never receive. There are three easy things you can do to fight fraud. Review your Medicare claims for accuracy, protect your personal information, and be on the lookout for suspicious activity. For more information or to report fraud, call Medicare at 1-800-MEDICARE or your local SHIP counselor at the Area Agency on Aging at 1-800-252-9240. Dr. Mara's book, The Passionate Life, Creating Vitality and Joy at Any Age, is now available on Kindle. And in paperback at Amazon. Don't forget to listen to Dr. Merrick Carpell and your golden years live from Austin, Texas, every Sunday on blogtalkradio.com. And we're back. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaracarpell.com. And now joining us on the phone once again, we have therapist, Asperger's and Internet addiction specialist and author, Nathan Driscoll. And this evening he's going to talk to us about autism. Good evening, Nathan. Good evening. Good evening. It's great to be back. Thank you for coming back. I realize it's been since 2017, so it's great to have you back and a long time coming. We want to, we really want to talk about this topic of autism. I just want to remind you that there's a slight delay when we talk like this, so it's just like maybe one or two seconds. It's good to just kind of keep that in mind, otherwise it can throw throw people off. No problem. No problem. I want our listeners to know that, too, so they'll understand. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. So, how you been? Oh, I've been pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty busy lately. How about yourself? Um, busy in spite of the pandemic, yep. So, I guess that's a good thing, right? Um, maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about your background before we jump into this topic. Oh, excellent, excellent. I've been a therapist for about 11 years, and I first became a therapist because I wanted to treat people who had Internet addiction and related conditions, because in my past I've had issues with that as well. So I've had issues with gaming addiction, and most of my clients have as well. I didn't plan to get into autism or anything like that. It was actually a coincidence. One day I was looking through my caseload and I found that half my clients were on the autism spectrum and it just made me think, hmm, maybe I should specialize in this because if they're, if they're on the spectrum, I need to treat them for what they're on. I need to help them when they're to combat the conditions of being on spectrum. So I decided to specialize in it. 
And then through the next few years, I became a specialist in treating high-functioning autism. And now I basically treat both, where a lot of my clients with autism have also internet addiction problems. So now I basically treat both as my main clientele. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So you're, you're an expert on autism. And, um, yes. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, really found your book to be fascinating because, you know, going to graduate school, they didn't teach us a lot about autism. Um, and, and maybe it was when I went to graduate school because they didn't really know a lot at that time. So, you know, I've had to do all my own reading on the side and, and self-education. So this book was really educational. Um, what thought would be helpful is to start with what is autism? Autism is basically a developmental condition that happens for many, many people. Most are not diagnosed. How it usually works with autism is it starts with early developmental delays, usually about between the ages of one and three. And it depends on the severity because autism is a spectrum, which means that it's a wide range of conditions. So usually you might start out with some learning disabilities. You might start out with some communication issues. You might start out with some oversensitive issues to stimuli like sight, sound, hearing. For example, maybe they're very picky eaters, or maybe they don't like the feel of their clothing, or maybe they're sensitive to high-pitched sounds, things of that nature. And usually what happens mm-hmm. is they experience the world in a different way because of their sensory conditions, and they don't know at an early age how to communicate this. And because they don't know any other perspective, this is normal to them. And to where when you're on the spectrum, you don't know exactly how neurotypical people feel because you feel stimuli, you feel sensory data very differently. So that's usually how it works. And this can turn into learning disabilities and delays, but this is not a condition about intelligence. Most people on the spectrum are actually pretty intelligent people. It's just that their, their sensory stimuli and their oversensitivities can lead them to where they might have difficulties communicating or difficulties understanding how other people relate. And this can also mm-hmm. mean that people don't know how to relate to them. So they might be bullied in school as children. They might, and they also, a lot of them have interests and, and interests where they're not, not typical interests. Like, for example, one of the main kind of stereotypical things with autism is a lot of them like trains, which is kind of strange. Uh-huh. They might obsess over trains, trains, things like that, to where it might be to where they're talking about it all the time. Now, if you're a kid and you don't really care about trains, you're going to kind of ignore this. You're not going to really be friends with this person unless you like trains too, which most people probably don't. But this can turn into many things. Like today, video games and things like that are a very common thing for people with Asperger's high-functioning autism to where they kind of gravitate to. So video games mm-hmm. is a pretty popular thing, but they might obsess over one game or two games over and over, and other people get tired of that, and then they don't understand why other people get tired and bored of that. Okay. Okay. So, well, let me ask you a question about that. So since with games, um, a lot of people are interested in that, does that turn into an opportunity for people who have who are on the autism spectrum to actually interact with other people? Yes, yes. That's one of the kind of ironies. Video games is an outlet for people to communicate and to make friendships, but, and here is a strong but, 
These are not friendships based on anything beyond video games, usually themselves. Mm, They'll talk to their friends about video games, things like that, but it won't be about anything else. It won't be like a traditional friendship where you go and see them in real life. You go and maybe go out to eat with them, watch a movie. It's all about the video game when they want to play the video game. So would you classify that as a real friendship? Probably not. And that's the problem because most people who are addicted to video games and who are on the autism spectrum, this is what they consider to be real friends because they don't really know the difference sometimes. I've had numerous mm-hmm. clients that have never had a real friend. They've never, and I've had a few that have never wanted one. They don't understand why it would be beneficial to have a real-life friend that you can go out and spend time with because they're on the screens 24-7 usually, and they can't see the room in their lives for any other activities. Right. Okay. So that brings up an interesting question. Um, since, um, you know, Internet addiction, which is your specialty, has become such a, a big thing, and you say that only 50% of your clients are, are on the autism spectrum, um, do the pe- people who are not on the autism spectrum start to have the same issues as the people on the autism spectrum because they're not doing anything else but gaming? Yes and no. They can maybe mimic some issues. For example, if mm-hmm. you're playing video games a lot, you are spending a lot of time in it, so you're not socially interacting with people. People on the autism spectrum often have difficulty socially interacting with people. Now, usually for both, it's because of a lack of opportunity, a lack of experience. But you can kind of mimic some symptoms of autism, but you're not really on the spectrum unless you're on the spectrum. But it can look similar that if you don't know what you're looking for, you can probably diagnose it pretty quickly without looking into the background. So you can mimic some symptoms of someone who's not on the spectrum to where they kind of look like it. But in the end, it all depends on functionals. It depends on past history. Right, right. But at that moment, they might start to have some of the same problems just because they're mm-hmm. only spending all their time on the Internet. <laughs> yes, yes. And just to mm-hmm. also be clear, not everyone who's on the spectrum spends all their time on the Internet either. There's many of them that have other activities. People on the spectrum are often obsessive at something in they're very rigid in their thinking. They're very obsessive at times. So they really, when they form an interest, they really form it. They might research it mm-hmm. heavily. And it doesn't have to be electronics. But in this generation, if you're of a younger generation, usually it is. I would say 90% of my clients probably have an addiction to something on electronics. Now, if you're girls, it can be social media. I've had mm-hmm. definitely, definitely female clients who are in the, between the ages of 15 and 25 that were addicted to social media because that's where they receive validation. That's where they spend a lot of their time, because that's where their peer group spend. Well, usually boys will spend time either in, in video games or they'll gravitate toward videos or both. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So what are some of the other um, signs of someone being on the autism spectrum? Some of the signs, well, one of the main ones really is the oversensitivity, what I mentioned earlier. And this can, uh-huh. the good thing about oversensitivity is that as you age, it can reduce, but usually it's a very rigid mindset of thinking to where if I don't like doing something, I'm going to refuse to do it. It might be actually painful. For example, someone that has oversensitivity to sound and hearing, it might actually be physically painful to be in a crowded room. 
to where there might be a lot of people speaking and it can actually cause physical pain that other people would not be able to understand. It could be things like mm-hmm. that. And, then if, it's, and if, we're, if it were me and a physical pain to be somewhere, I wouldn't want to be in that environment. I'd want to leave. And that's where the communication aspect really is important to really communicate about, okay, well, if I'm feeling pain, I need to tell people around me there's too much noise or there's too much high-pitched sounds or things like that. But that's just one example. There are many. It can be that mm-hmm. food. For example, I had a client once that he could not really hardly eat anything beyond oatmeal or liquids because anything else besides the texture of oatmeal would feel like knives going down his throat. So wow. if you can imagine just eating oatmeal, you're not getting very much nutrition getting just oatmeal for your entire diet. So I had to be very creative and think of other things that would mimic the kind of textures of oatmeal so he would try new things because he would be very, very adamant, I refuse to try anything, it's going to hurt. Now, for me, I don't understand that sensation. When I eat things, I don't have physical pain, but he did. So I had to realize, okay, well, you know what? If he says he has pain, he has pain, and we have to, we have to not ignore that. We've got to take the food. We've got to put it into a medium that he can digest. And once he, his parents started to do that, he started to eat a lot more foods because they would just say, well, you know, we'll just eat a yo- oatmeal, which for long term, you just can't do that because right. many people on the spectrum are picky eaters. Now, many of them, they, they outgrow this. But the psychological habits of this can continue, which means that change is something that as they get older, they need to try to experience to get out of the rigidity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I know, you know, the book is titled, you know, the second part of the title is, So Now What? And a, a large part of your book is helping someone on the spectrum actually overcome some of the obstacles that these symptoms or, you know, the, the um, you know, the obstacles that they face, like you just said, can help them through that. So um, could you get some examples of, of some of the uh, things, the assignments that you give to readers of the book to help them to move through it? Like you just said, you know, that they have to, they have difficulty dealing with change. So there are things that they have to do to get to get over that because life is all about change and it's going to be very stressful for someone who can't deal with change, right? Definitely, definitely. First, my book is divided into a few different parts. The first part of my book is about kind of your identity, who you are and what you think is very important. If you think, for example, I'm on the autism spectrum, this is just all I am. If you have a negative mindset about yourself, or if you just identify as a condition like autism, you already are failing because you're limiting yourself and your potential. So the first part of the book is changing how you think about yourself and your identity, which is extremely important because without that, there is no basis of change. The next part is kind of coping skills to deal with all the stress and all the, and all the change it's going to be. It's just, change is stressful. And stress and anxiety are very common on the autism spectrum. So you have to learn some coping skills like meditation exercises, grounding exercises. And also through the book, you learn how to think about things, how to change the thoughts that you have. But a lot of the book is mainly devoted into days to where you engage in certain tasks. For example, one day, if you've defined that being in public places is stressful for you, then you're going to start going to public places. You're not going to go into a mall your first day because that might be too much. But you might go mm-hmm. into maybe a gas station 
or some small place, and you might spend 10 or 15 minutes there. And, yes, that might be stressful and it might be difficult, but then you go and you do this another day. Then you do this another day. Then you graduate to a more difficult activity. Okay, maybe now I'll go into maybe like a small pharmacy or I'll go into a somewhat bigger store. Then eventually I'll work my way up to like a grocery store or a mall because now I've gotten more used to things. We, the more we experience things, the more we get used to them. But if you mm-hmm. tell yourself, I can't, and you isolate and you stay at home and you stay in your room, you don't grow, you don't change, you stay the way you are. So my book is a lot about different small activities you can do to get out into the real world so you can experience life, so you can go and be independent. The main focus of the book is so you can learn how to be independent and on your own if you're high-functioning on the spectrum to where you're not letting all these conditions and symptoms limit you. And, yes, it's difficult. I do a lot of these activities with my clients, which is why I wrote the book. A lot of these activities, well, pretty much all of these activities I do with my clients, and it's hard. A lot of them, they come back, it's very hard, it's very difficult to do these. I'm like, yes, it is, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. change is very, very hard, and change produces a lot of anxiety. But the more you get, the more you get to to doing these things, the more you go out and experience it, the more you build up, the more stamina you build up. To where eventually it's not that hard because now you've also broken the, the pattern of thoughts in your mind that tell you that I can't. Basically, you're breaking the, the thought patterns in your mind and the conditioning of I'm on the spectrum, I can't do these things, I can't live a normal life. You can mm-hmm. live a normal life. It's just that it has to be your normal. And your normal does not mean anything bad compared to other people's normal. It's just that you have to make ways in your life to go out and function. And you can't be stuck in your room, stuck by isolating, stuck just being on the computer. Because that is not a way of living, especially for people who are teenagers or young adults. Because one day if their parents are all a lot around, what happens to them? And that's where a lot of my clients are. My client age is between 16 and 25. And a lot of mm-hmm. them are, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And they're reliant on their parents, and their parents are like, well, what are we going to do if we're not here? So a lot of my book, a lot of my therapy is about being independent so they can go, and not just so they're taken care of, but they can go be happy and to find a life that they want to live. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's uh, that's wonderful. Um, And I think that that is sort of breaking some myths because there are myths about, you know, autism that people can't, break out of these ways of being and it sounds like you've come up with a with a plan of how people really can get through some of these ways of being that are an obstacle to them at least like you said it's you it doesn't mean that you have to change who you are but find a way to enjoy your life and not and not have the anxiety that comes with the the things that you have to do in life in order to you know to live it to not in your bedroom so that that's wonderful um, you know I know one of the things that you talk about in the book are things that I always had thought of with autism and that was with the eye contact and um, difficulty understanding facial expressions and emotions so. How do you work with that? How do you help people overcome that, those issues? For eye contact, I ask them to visualize, to look look at their forehead. Try to keep your focus at their forehead. 
because you see the raw problem with eye contact for someone on the spectrum is they've learned often when they were a child that eye contact means attention. And if you're getting attention because of negative reasons, you don't want that attention. So maybe you're not communicating mm. appropriately or maybe someone's bullying you or maybe someone's basically making fun of you in some way. Well, you learn not to make eye contact. You don't want this kind of attention if it's negative attention. Then what happens is as they get older, this conditioning of not looking at people in the eye continues to where they feel anxiety to look people in the eye. So I asked them, okay, I want you just to imagine that there was like a dot or something in the middle of their forehead, and I just want you to talk to that. Talk to them. I know it's uncomfortable, and I have them roll. Sometimes I have them role play it. Now, usually in the office with me, see, the problem is in the office with me, it's easy because I know there's not much stress with me. But real life, right. when you get into the real world, that's where the stress comes up. So they have to go out and they have to practice. And just practice with people you're comfortable with. Look people in the eye that you're comfortable with. And then, and then as you get more used to it, you can then start to look people in the eye in other settings. But start out with the people you know. And actually, if there's parents, I like to tell the parents, I want you to encourage them to look you in the eye. But I don't want you to say anything. I want like a little hand gesture. Or I want some kind of a little, a little, a little gesture that you, maybe you raise a finger or something. That might, or maybe you're pointing upward, meaning, hey, look me in the eye or something like that. Because you don't want to make a huge scene out of it either. Now, if they don't have parents, if they're older than that, I just ask them to try to really work on this, try to imagine that they're looking in the forehead, and just to keep looking in that direction until eventually it becomes more comfortable, which it won't be for a while if they've been conditioned to this. Now, emotions and things like that, that's a little bit more complex. They have to first recognize the emotions that they feel. How do I feel? Do I feel angry? Do I feel sad? Do I feel depressed? Do I feel anxious? Do I feel stressed? Do I feel worried? They have to be more aware of their emotions before they can start to be aware of facial expressions and emotions of other people. So sometimes I work with them to figure out where they're at. Because it can be very easy to be in a state of numbness to where you're just in an mm-hmm. always kind of normal state for them, but that state is usually anxiety for them. So we work on coping skills to reduce anxiety, and then we start to work on, okay, well, if I'm feeling this way, how do you think my facial, my facial muscles look? How do you think my eyes look? How do you think my body looks if I'm upset or I'm stressed or if I'm angry? And then I try to mimic some of these in the office about how these emotions might look to somebody else, which then, of course, mm-hmm. they can also watch movies or watch shows or something, and then they can try to guess what people are feeling by muting it and just looking at the characters and going, okay, based on their facial expressions or based on that, what do you think this person is feeling right now? They just have to practice this after a period of time. Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, I think that most people have the idea that someone who has autism doesn't have emotions. They're robotic. But what you're saying is that it's really anxiety that sort of causes people to, you know, not not understand their own emotions. They're not they're afraid to feel them, not that they are incapable of it. Um that's interesting. I, you know, I learned a lot about autism from a client that I had who self-diagnosed himself and had and said, you know, I realize that I don't understand people's body language and facial expression. Um, so we worked on that, but I wish I had your book because then we could have talked about it first in that direction. How do you feel getting in touch with your emotion first? 
and understanding your own emotion before then trying to figure out other people's emotion because that makes complete sense. <laughs> that that totally makes sense. Um, so, you know, tell us about your practice. Um, are you practicing on telehealth now with the pandemic? Are you seeing people in your office? Um, both? I'm treating people both. I do see, I'd say, about 50% in the office, 50% online, and I can see anyone within the state of Texas. But I would mm-hmm. say the pandemic has definitely caused an influx of online. Before the pandemic, I'd say maybe 20% of my caseload. It jumped up to about 75, 80, and now it's down to about 50%. But teletherapy is good for if you're concerned about the virus or if you are living somewhere that's far away where it's difficult to reach the office. Teletherapy is a good alternative. But I would definitely say that in-person is superior if you can help it. Because there, Mm -hmm. with a camera, you can't see all the range of facial expressions, emotions, body language, things like that, to where the in-person it's much more it's much more easier to make a connection, and therapy oh, is right. definitely a connection between you and the therapist, which is why if you can't, you can't. I mean, if you mean teletherapy is much better than no therapy any day of the week, but in-person mm-hmm. therapy is better if you can do it. Right, right. So I did get a question from a listener who wanted to know if you also deal with um, lower functioning autism. Uh, that's a very good question. I have some experience in that, but I would not call myself an expert in that. Tell this person, or if you're listening right now, look for the Sunrise Program, S-O-N, Sunrise Program. They work with people who are very on the lower end of autism to help them to transition to be more on the high-function end and to be more independent. Some of what I do has been modeled a little bit after them. And they've really had miraculous results. So for lower function, I would definitely check out the Sunrise program. I definitely agree that you will not be disappointed in that. They are, I'd say, some of the best experts in this in the world, and uh, I would definitely recommend them anytime. Yeah, it, it was that. Did that come about? Was there a movie about that? A documentary? I thought I remember There may that. have been. I think there might mm-hmm. have been. Uh, there's there's books for it. There's there's I mean there's tons of YouTube videos about it that go into the right. different techniques and things. So there's definitely a lot of information there that will definitely help you. But it's one of the things that helped model me into kind of a little bit of what I do from their approach, which is very very. It makes it common sense. It's a relationship approach to where autism is about healing and connection. It's not just about behaviors and actions. And I, I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So for the listener, the Sunrise Program, thank you for that. Um, and you also have written two other books. I know we had you come on and speak about one of them last time, about Internet addiction, and um, the other one was about being a parent of someone with internet addiction, right? Yes. And yes. and you've written, and you have a blog. So if listeners are interested in finding out about all your books, the, the book Autism book, um, and the internet addiction books, your blog, your telehealth therapy, your in-person therapy, I 
I think the, you're right. The, one of the advantages of telehealth is that anyone in the state can can have, you know, have access to you, right? Mm-hmm. You're located in Houston, correct? Correct. Okay. All right. So if people are interested in finding out more about you and your services and your books and your blogs, um, what's the best way that they can do that? You can go to my website, which is just nathandriscoll.com. It's just N-A-T-H-A-N-D-R-I-S-K-E-L-L.com. And there you can find links to everything that I have. Or you can just type my name into Amazon, and my books will pop up there too. But my website is probably the best way. Then you can get my phone number if you have any questions, schedule appointments with me, get my email address, check out my books. Pretty much everything I do is there. Okay, great. So I'm going to post all of this on my website post about this show um, later tonight. So if people didn't have their pen and paper ready, they can go there later, and it will all be there. They can just click on it, and they'll take them to your website. Um, thank you so much, Nathan, for for coming on the program and talking about this. I think it's a really important topic and one that a lot of people just don't know a lot about. So it's really helpful. Well, you're welcome. It was a pleasure to be back on your show again. All right. Well, you have a very good evening, okay? You too. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. We're going to take a quick break. Um, Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Worried about memory loss? Dr. Ronald DeVere, certified neurologist and director of Alzheimer's disease and memory disorders in Lakeway, has been helping those with dementia and memory loss for over 12 years, specializing in the diagnosis, treatment, and counseling of those with memory loss and dementia. Dr. DeVere also has a book to reduce your worry and fear by knowing the fact. Memory loss, everything you want to know but forget to ask. Available now on Amazon.com. Dr. Ronald DeVere, Alzheimer's disease and memory disorders center in Lakeway, and his book, Memory Loss, everything you want to know but forget to ask. For more information or to schedule an appointment, call 512-261-7909. Please visit us on the web at www.drmaricarpel.com. All right, and and we are back, Mara Carpel and your golden years, right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaricarpel.com. And that was really interesting. I do highly recommend that book um, if you yourself is on the autism spectrum or is someone that you know or, or a family member or a friend is on the spectrum because it it, it really lays it out um, clearly with exercises and, and tasks to do that could help to overcome some of the, the issues that are stumbling blocks on your path to living a passionate life because as Nathan was saying, you can enjoy your life and have a high-quality life and live a passionate life um, with uh, being on the autism spectrum. And it also, if it's someone that you love and care about, it helps you to have a better understanding. And um, so it's not so foreign. I think that's part of the issue and why people are stigmatized who are on the autism spectrum is because most people just don't understand it. So understanding is really, really important. So I do recommend this book, and, and the link is on my 
uh, post about the show. And I, um, and it will, it does kind of go along with the topic that I want to talk about today, which is um, living a passionate life by having compassion. So understanding other people, no matter where they are in their life, um, is really important and it helps not only them and, and society, that the society that we live in, but it helps us to live a more passionate life. Um, before we get to that, I want to mention a few things um, before I forget. So Saturday, this Saturday, um, August 28th, um, there's going to be an all-day live workshop called the Online Wellness Show from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. at Central Time. And that, I guess, would be 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And there will be several speakers and uh, about all different topics about health and wellness. And I'll be speaking at 1 p.m. Central Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time for one hour um, with an opportunity to ask questions at the end. And my topic is preparing for the new normal, 10 steps to release anxiety and survive as we re-engage with the world. So join me for that. It's free to register, and the registration is just at the at onlinewellnessshow.com. And I also have the link on my Facebook page, which is Dr. Mara Carpell, Your Golden Years, and I'll be posting that over and over again so people can, if you forget, you can go there and you just need to register and then it'll pop up when it's, when the day comes and it'll be all, it has the whole schedule of who's speaking and what they're speaking about. So Saturday, this Saturday, August 28th, I'll be speaking at 1 p.m. Um, also, beginning on that day will be a brand new free downloadable meditation on my website that you can download for free, and it'll be a meditation, a guided meditation to connect to your passion. And that's at drmaricarpel.com, and that will be available starting on Saturday. And coming very soon after that, within a couple of weeks, my Audible will be launching. The Audible of my book, which is now available on Kindle and in paperback, will be, um, it'll now be an audio, The Passionate Life, and that will be launching. We're just getting the, we have it all done. We're just getting all the files uploaded, and so that may be soon after the show, like another week or two. So anyway, that's out of the way. And I just want to talk for a little bit before the twins join us um, from Mexico to talk about how, we can reconnect to our passion by connecting to our compassion. So this has been a really rough year, and I've been talking about this for weeks on end about trying to reconnect because so many people, myself included, that you know, have had times of feeling really blocked and stuck because of the world feeling stuck around us. So how do we get through to that feeling of passion, that feeling of joy, and that we're on the right path towards doing what, what we need to do in the world, what our purpose is in the world. And 
I've mentioned this before, and I think it's really important that our purpose right now might be different than it was before the pandemic hit. And it might change again when things start to open up and, and we're not worried so much about this anymore. But our, our, our purpose might be completely different, in, and it might be to help the people that are having a hard time right now. Of course, we have to start with self-compassion before we can feel compassion towards other people. We need to give ourselves a break. We need to understand that this has been a rough, what, 15, 15 months at this point. Um, we need to understand that we might not have created masterpieces over this time with all this extra time on our hands. It might have felt really difficult at times to even get up off the couch. Um, people have, you know, put on the COVID-15, extra 15 pounds, um, not eating as well, stress eating, having to take care of children at home while also working from home. There's been a lot of stress on people. So you need to be compassionate with yourself and give yourself a break. Um, the next thing is to look around us and start to look at how can we help other people. And helping other people starts with even just the feeling of understanding other people and the difficulties that they're going through. When we start to do little things, even little things, um, we can start to feel that up, that uplifting feeling of having a greater purpose in life, that what we're doing has meaning because we're, we're helping someone else smile, even as simple as that. So I've been reading um, about the Dalai Lama because that's his, that is his path is to bring more compassion into the world. And his whole, his whole thing, and he, you know, if you've ever seen the Dalai Lama, he's usually smiling and a very authentic, genuine smile. He usually looks extremely joyful. Um, he often laughs. He is the most joyful, passionate, powerful public figure that I have ever seen. He's a really powerful public figure. At the same time, he's frequently laughing. And he has been through a lot of suffering. He had, he was, you know, he was um, banished from his home um, when Tibet was taken over. He has seen a lot of death and dying around him, but still he manages to keep that joy in his life. And one of the ways that he does that um, is by having compassion for other people. And so I was reading an article about him, and this was written by... Um, who is this written by? This is written by Pico Iyer. He's an author, and he had he has known the Dalai Lama for 
something like 45 years and has followed him around. And he talked about this one one time, or he said, often when I see him give large public talks, someone will stand up afterward and ask with great sincerity what to do if you really hope for world peace or environmental reform and it doesn't seem to work out. I mean, we all have these big dreams, right? We have world peace. We want to save the earth. They're great dreams to have. Dalai Lama responds, wrong dream. His holiness responds with warmth, going on to point out that we have to be rigorously realistic in our aspirations. If we aim to change our habits and maybe those of people close to us, we might meet with some success. If we hope to transform the world overnight, we'll surely be disappointed. So our dharma, our purpose, our passion can be contributing to a more peaceful world, contributing to a healthier environment. But we need to look at what can we do today? How can I serve today? What can I do in my world, in my small environment here, to be kinder to people, to bring joy to other people, to change my own habits, to create a better better world? And we can start looking at um, our path as one of compassion, that what, what can we do in our life? to serve other people and bring more compassion into the world. And he talks very clearly that having a purpose in life is really, really important. Um, It's of the utmost important to have a meaningful, purposeful life. But we need to keep in mind that we are not separate from the rest of the world. We need to be kind to other people because when we're kind to other people, then we're kind to ourselves. And one more quote before we go to the twins, or two more quotes. (laughs) Um, Dalai Lama writes, if one thinks in terms of one one will find that working for one's own benefit, totally neglecting the welfare of others, is very selfish and hence unfair. When one compares the welfare of oneself with that of the numberless others, one finds that the welfare of others is far more important and therefore giving up the benefits accruing to a single person for the sake of numberless others is a just and righteous act. Sacrificing the well-being of many for the benefit of one is not only the most, a most unfair act, but also a foolish one. So he talks about that in terms of how it benefits us to help other people. If we're only thinking about ourselves, then we're not going to feel joyful and passionate. And Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Buddhist monk, writes, words and thoughts concerning compassionate action that are not put into practice are like beautiful flowers that are colorful but have no fragrance. So having thoughts, thinking about other people, keeping, us in our, it, keeping them in our thoughts is very nice. 
but we need to actually take action. And if we take action to help another person, even with simple acts of kindness around us, it it sparks that passion within us and keeps and starts to build a momentum so that we're living a more passionate life. Um, so I'm going to stop there and I'm going to ask you to think about what can you do in your own life today, tomorrow, to be to act on compassion, to take compassionate action. And it can be small, something small within your own family, your network, at your job, the people that your neighbors, the people that you know, or it can be something big if you're able to do more. It doesn't matter how big it is. Small acts of kindness are very, very powerful, and they affect people's lives in profound ways and has a rippling effect of helping more and more and more people. And when we can do that, um, we start to feel happier and more joyful and passionate ourselves. And psychologists have actually found that the quickest way out of a depression is to help somebody else. Because when we're depressed, we're focused on ourselves. Poor me, why me, this is terrible. And when we help someone else, we kind of lose ourselves in that and we start to notice that we feel better. So now we're going to go to um, Mexico where people are frequently joyful and there's lots of music and joy and compassion and before we go to Mexico we're going to play art, some of our art music about Mexico and then we're going to go to Minerva and Ruben and Bay of Banderas who are going to take us to another Mexico destination.
That poppy CT just blows through my mind Takes me back to my place Punta Mita time Hey Minerva and Ruben, how have you been? We're doing great Yeah, I'm surfing a lot and working on my new job online And everything is good Great. So now it's time to get back to work here. <laughs> and where are we going today? Um, Chetumal. Chetumal is a city on Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula, and it's the capital of Quintana Roo, with a population of 169,000. Chetumal has an elevation of 33 feet. Temperature and humidity. It's very similar to Puerto Rico, where 80 degrees in the norm. There are several places to visit, like the Maya Museum, the Sao Paulo Obispo, the Manati Sanctuary, and more. There are also many great restaurants, like Almina, El Taco Loco Chetumal, Café del Puerto, and great hotels like Fiesta in Chetumal. Mayan Secret Hotel Boutique, Capitol Plaza Hotel, all under $60. Wow. So there are so many places to see in Mexico, and this doesn't disappoint. So what's happening there in San Pancho? It's been hot, but it's raining a lot the last week. Yeah, and they also integrated a new bowl in the skate park. It's really cool. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. How's COVID doing down there? Well, it's elevating the, mm. the like the numbers, and it's all closing earlier, but we're doing fine here. Okay. We well, are safe. Yeah, stay safe. All right. Yeah. Until next time. Adios. Until next time. Adios. All right. So now we've come to the end of another program. And before we go, I'll let you know what's coming up next week. Next Sunday, August 29th, we'll be back live from Austin, Texas, and we'll be joined by Zen Buddhist monk. Vietnam War veteran, author, and founder of the Dalso Foundation, a nonprofit organization founded in 1993 that's dedicated to the peaceful transformation of conflict, violence, and trauma in individuals and groups, Claude Anshin Thomas. And he'll be here to discuss his latest book, Bringing Meditation to Life, 108 Teachings on the Path of Zen Practice. And that'll be interesting, talking about um, meditation and transforming conflict and trauma. So let's looking forward to that. And there'll be more. If you want to hear tonight's program again and read the information from this show, go to my website, drmaricarpel.com, and you'll also get the link to any websites that we talked about on the program. That podcast will be ready. Um, in a few hours, so later this evening you'll you'll find that there. And also be sure to 
Oh, you can also listen to this evening's program in five minutes from now by going to blogtalkradio.com, blogtalkradio.com slash your golden years. And you can also hear it on Apple Podcasts in five minutes. And be sure to follow me on Facebook, Dr. Mara Carpell, Your Golden Years, and you can get the link to the upcoming um, keynote and online wellness expo right there on my Facebook page. This show was produced by Complex Entertainment, Coastal Productions, and Spiked Up Productions, and sponsored by AMightyGoodTime.com. Special thanks to my guests, Nathan Driscoll, Minerva, and Ruben in Mexico. And, of course, thank you to Art. Thank you all for listening. Have a peaceful night and inspiring week. And remember, youth has no age. Good night, everyone. Stay safe. Any guidance offered by Dr. Carpell is not intended to replace the advice of your own physician or mental health specialist. Neither Dr. Carpell, her sponsors, nor this station assumes responsibility for the misuse of any of the information given on this show. Oh, 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 oh